welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more the eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're so... So eager to hear from you, Lord, in this passage, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would come and you would speak and that you would open our eyes, illumine our hearts, Lord. We pray not just that we would have an academic understanding of this text, but we pray, Lord, that your word would so change our desires and our wants and what we love and what we give our lives to, Lord. Only you can do that, and you have consistently done that for us and so we pray lord that you would come again and do that work again in our hearts lord we thank you for the presence of your spirit within us that you have caused your own holy spirit to dwell within us those of us who are in christ that your spirit dwells in us and that your spirit dwells among us in a special way as we gather that there is something different about your children gathering together something we don't experience when we're alone. And so we thank you for filling this place and filling us with your spirit. And so we pray, Lord, as we open this passage, we pray for you that you would speak, and we thank you in advance for all that you're going to do as you feed your kids. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a little bit of an unusual passage. Um, This might be a passage that when you're studying through Philippians, you're like, let me just skim this and get to some more of the meat, you know? Um, on a surface level, it looks like it's about who's going to bring a letter, <laughs> you know, yeah, who's going to bring a letter. And back then when you'd send a letter, you know, you didn't just put a stamp on it or send it by Gmail or something like that. Somebody had to physically take the letter. And the person that took the letter mattered. You know, the more important the person that brings the letter, the more of an honor it was to receive the letter. It's a big deal who brings it. So who's going to bring the letter? And Paul goes, you know, Paul's got the best excuse for not bringing the letter. You know, he's like, hey, I'm a little bit tied up right now. You know, I'm in prison in Rome. Timothy would be a great second choice, but we're going to see a reason why Paul needs Timothy there still. And so he sends this man, Epaphroditus, 
which Epaphroditus is a very underrated baby name. Um, before I continue on my Epaphroditus speech, is there anybody here named Epaphroditus? Or has anybody close to them named Epaphroditus? This would be a good time to let me know. Anyone? Okay. So Epaphroditus is a great name. I mean, you could like name your kids that, name your baby that, be the only baby like that. You call them a little EPAP or something, right? And I was telling my wife this, and she's like, it sounds like a disease. <laughs> and it does. It's an itis, right? It's a swelling of your epaphra. And it's, it's very dangerous. So a lot of you guys have never heard of him. How many of you guys have heard of him? Okay. Really? That's a lot. Okay. Anybody, like, this is your favorite Bible character. So we have the Reformation feast next week, and we all dress up as Bible characters, which we're not going to do. We'll be like, who are you? And you'll be like, can't you tell? Like, this is Epaphroditus. But Paul is doing something deeper here than just talking about who's going to bring the letter. What he's really giving here is he's giving two living examples of what he's been teaching in Philippians 2. So you've got some commands at the ends of Philippians 1, and you've got Philippians 2, and then you've got this description of Christ and how he fulfills it. And then he's like, hey, let me show you some living examples of this. So he's talking about the letter being brought, but he's also wanting to highlight two people and show them as examples of Philippians 2. And the other cool thing, and the reason why I always like these parts of the epistles, is that it's giving us who live way later a really neat window into what the church was like. I mean, I love like the end of Colossians where it's like, greet this guy and that guy, trying to understand like how did they relate to one another. And so we get this beautiful window into what the church was like in the first century. And what was it like? Well, we're going to see that God's designed the church, the local church, us, to be a family who sacrificially care for one another. And we can see really strikingly that the church is a family in the example of Timothy. Take a look again at verse 19. Paul says this about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. It's really beautiful what he says about Timothy. He says about Timothy in verse 22, he says, as a son with a father he has served in the gospel with me. It appears that Timothy's own father was not a believer. If you look at 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul talks about how Timothy was actually discipled by his mother and his grandmother. He says this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith which first dwelled in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. And so he was discipled by his mother and grandmother. It sounds like his father wasn't a believer. Paul first met Timothy 11 years before this letter in his own hometown of Lystra. It was actually in the same chapter. It's Acts 16, so it was right before they came to Philippi. It says in Acts 16, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were there in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul meets Timothy. He's like, this would be a perfect guy for my missions team. This is somebody I want to bring along with me. Uh, Timothy's very dedicated to going. He's actually willing to get circumcised to join this missions trip. And, uh, and so he comes along with serious dedication. 
And they minister together. Paul and Timothy minister together, and this deep friendship grows. And it's really cool. You can see it in this text, the kind of friendship, the kind of family relationship that built between Timothy and Paul. Look at verse 20. You know, they became like one soul. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. There's a word there that he uses for no one like him. It's a word called isopsychos, okay? And isopsychos sounds concerning, you know, when you're saying he's totally isopsychos. But what it means is it means same-souled, right? Or equal-souled. It's this idea that, that Paul and Timothy had this kinship. It was like they had one soul. They had a kindred spirit. Isn't that cool? He says that developed. That kind of deep friendship had developed between them. So that when Paul says, if I were to send Timothy, it'd be just like me going. You know, because we're so tight and we understand each other so well. And we, have, we share a soul. And isn't that a beautiful description of like deep friendship? And then a little bit later, he says that they become like father and son. And as Paul and Timothy ministry together, this father-son relationship built between them. When he wrote to Timothy years later, he called him my true son in the faith. So Paul saw Timothy as like a son. Timothy saw Paul as like a father. And this is the kind of relationship, guys, that builds as people do ministry together. Don't forget the context of this. This wasn't just that, you know, they would just hang out together and, you know, talk to each other long hours over coffee and stuff like that. They actually did ministry together, and that cemented a bond between them. You see that in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, what? He served with me in the gospel. It's the kind of relationships that are forged in gospel ministry, as we, like Philippians 1 talks about, as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, guys, that the best friendships happen, the best friendships are formed in a common mission. You know, that's why you have movies like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or things like that, is that these, these friendships, they forge through a common mission. We have the best possible mission, guys, the ministry of the gospel. That's something for all of us to do. Every member is a minister in the ministry of the gospel. And that includes both leading people to Christ, but it also includes feeding people with Christ, right? That we, we feed people with Christ, we lead people with Christ. You saw that in their missions trip. Paul would go there, people would get converted, and then what did he do? He'd swing back around and make sure that he, he fed them on the gospel and he instructed them. And so their relationship grew. Um, Timothy became a real supporter to Paul, too. You know, Timothy learned from Paul, but Paul eventually leaned more and more on Timothy. You can see this, that he relied on Timothy. He leaned on him. So the benefit went both directions. So much so that the reason why he gives these Philippians that he isn't sending Timothy yet is because he needs him with him there in Rome still. He's like, I'd send Timothy, but I still need him. Take a look at verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me. What do you think he's talking about there? Just as soon as I see how it goes with me. There's a lot there, right? He's awaiting trial in Rome before the emperor Nero. There's other Christians in Rome that are harassing him while he's waiting, which is crazy. That's in chapter 1. And there were so many things that Paul could have just crumbled and become discouraged about while he's there, right? Like he's pretty sure he's not going to die. You see that throughout the letter. But there's this consistent thinking back to like, you know, he doesn't know for sure. And, and on top of that, you got Christians around that aren't supporting him. They're actually kind of making his life more difficult. There's so many ways for Paul to get discouraged in this prison cell. But he can think of nobody better to be with him than his friend Timothy. He's like, I'll send him to you. 
but only after I see how it goes with me. And this is kind of neat because a lot of times we think of Paul as this lone ranger, indestructible, you know, Jocko apostle. You know, he's up at 5 a.m. doing his exercises, taking a picture of his sweat. You guys know what I'm talking about? Jocko Williams? No? Okay, that's okay. Think of him this it's like superhero. He's this lone superhero. Not an Avenger, but like somebody that operates by themselves. And then he can like just have all this strength, you know, just, just him and the Lord, and he's got it. He can he can do anything, right? But that's not the case. The only way that Paul can do what he does here is the support of other people from his church family. As you remember Paul in chapter one. And he's been taken out of his missionary travels, and he's been chained up. He's chained to a, a Roman soldier, and he, he writes in Philippians, and he says, you know what? He lifts up his chains, and he's all, you know what? This works, too. Like, this spreads the gospel, too. This works, too. The only re- way he could do that, guys, is because he had Timothy there holding his arms up. Like, he had a friend that would help him. This was Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, and uh, spoiler alert, he doesn't die in this one, okay? Uh, it's an old story. I figure I can tell you now. If you hadn't read it by now, you know, like, I don't know when I could tell you, if I can't tell you now. So anyway, he, he gets freed from this. Years later, he'll be back in a Roman prison again, and that one he doesn't live through. He actually gets killed by the Romans in that one. And right before he dies, he writes a letter to Timothy, Second Timothy, right before his execution, and he says this to Timothy at the end, do your best to come to me soon. He's like, if I'm going to die, you're the one I want with me. Isn't that beautiful? Is the church is a family of people you'd like beside you when you die, right? Church isn't a business. It isn't a spiritual, you know, service provider. It isn't here to give you individualized uh, spiritual experiences, you know, worship experiences. It's a family, guys. It's people that you want beside you when you die. So what we see in this passage is that the church is a family. It's the people you become equal sold with. It's people who become your brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. The ones you can rely on when dark times come. The people you want with you when you die. And guys, this is super countercultural. It's even countercultural to the church culture, but it's countercultural. To care this much about a group of people who you're not related to and you probably have nothing in common with but Christ is very unusual right? It's very unusual that every week you're like, I need to gather with my people, you know? I need to gather with my church family every week. And then uh, many of you gathering in the middle of the week. This is a very unusual thing. This is something the Spirit is doing in you. It's counterculture. It was even countercultural back then. If you look at verse 21, he says, they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Christ. He's like, Timothy's unique. And I don't know if the other guys around him were like, wait, what? What did he just... Is he talking about us? You know, like, but it, what he's saying here is he's not saying that every other person he works with seeks their own interest, but he's saying, like, this is unusual. It's unusual to be so emotionally and relationally invested in a body of people. And how much more now? Guys, you're going to have to really swim against the tide if you're going to experience that kind of church community, that kind of gospel community life. You're going to have to work hard at it because everything in the culture is pulling you away from it. You can listen to a better sermon this morning at home, okay? I know, you can be like, no, Eric, you know. Yes, you can. You can listen to a better sermon this morning at home. You could, you know, put on your favorite worship songs, not like, oh, that one's too old, that one's too new, you know? Like, you could put on your exact favorite ones, right? You could, for fellowship, you could pick one or two people that are just like your people, and you get along with them, and maybe they don't 
call you out on anything. And maybe it's just kind of a nice, warm experience because you got a lot in common. You guys have all kinds of interests anyway. And so it's just easy to kind of do Christianity, do life together. There are ways to do this individualistically, you know, that aren't the church, though. That's the thing. It's not God's design. And so we're going to have to swim against the tide if we're going to have this. So how do we grow more like that kind of church family? And by the way, I just want to tell you before I launch into this, you guys are like this, which is so cool. So many of you in this church are like is described here. So many of you have these kind of relationships. And I'm always kind of blown away by it because, you know, I'll think about a particular person and I'll think, man, I don't know if like they're like connected to the body and, it, and I'm like, oh, they need to connect somehow. And I just want them to experience what I experienced, the richness of, of church family. And then later on, I'll be talking to them and they'll be like, oh yeah, I met up with so-and-so and yeah, we're going on vacation with these guys. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is happening. And it's always so encouraging to see this kind of family life occurring. So it's here. It's not like I'm, what I guess what I'm wanting to do here is say, let's grow in this more and more. And if you're somebody that's with us that's not really connected in that way, this is something that will be helpful to you. And I'll encourage those of you who are doing it. So how can we grow more as a church family like that? You know what Paul would say? He would say, follow the example of Timothy. I think he put Timothy here to be an example of what he's taught so far in Philippians 2. And I can see that in verse 22. Check this out and see if, see if you notice something you've already heard here. Verse 22, For I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare, for all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Is there something in that passage that reminds you of something that came earlier in the chapter? Some wording? What is it? Yes, the interests of Christ. Yes, what else? It's part of it. What else? Yeah, that own interest thing is a quote from a little bit higher up. So take a look at Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That sounds just like what's going on, right? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul's actually putting Timothy forth here as an example of Philippians 2. He's saying, you know, we need to imitate Christ in, in counting others as more important than ourselves and seeking their interests. And then he says, hey, there's a guy you know that does this. And you could actually look at him and you could imitate him and you could watch him because there's nobody that does it quite like him. That's why he brings up Timothy. And this reminds us, guys, that like Timothy, we need to practice the Philippians 2 principle. Philippians 2 principle is verses 3 through 5. It's to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We strengthen the church as we don't look merely to our own interests, but the interests of others. So here's how to think about that. When we gather do you look for people that are standing or seated alone? You look for those people that are alone. And then do you see them, and then do you engage in conversation with them? And I know we have more than our fair share of introverts here, but this is something we're called to do. Like, I'm one of you too. I push myself on Sunday. I basically die after this, okay? And don't reemerge until Monday morning, okay? But we need to push ourselves, right? We need to seek other people's interests. So do you see those people? Do you engage with them? Do you engage with people that are new? You guys know, one of my favorite sounds at home is hearing my kids talk to each other. 
I love hearing them talk to each other. I'll be just, like sitting in the bedroom, like reading a book, and I'll hear two of my kids just having a conversation with each other. And it's so cool as they get older that they enjoy each other. And they're like encouraging each other, and they're like asking questions about each other. For some reason, it's like the best sound ever, you know? And, and it's the best sound here too, guys. It's the best sound here to see God's people caring for one another, engaging with one another, reaching out to people that are new, people that are alone. And I know, guys, it's got to be our father's favorite sound. He just loves it. He loves his kids getting together like this, worshiping him, and then sticking around and just wanting to, like, encourage and build up and use our gifts to bless one another. So when you gather, do you look for those people that are alone? Do you approach and initiate them in conversation? And when you talk, do you seek to know their interests? If you're an introvert like me, this is the coolest thing ever because you just ask them questions about them. You could walk away and they could not know a thing about you. It's amazing. And now, that's difficult if we're both doing it. But, but I found that really encouraging. Like, I don't have to, like, do something except to, to know, to seek, to understand. You know, if they bring up burdens, to pray for them. I can do that. You can do that, too. And when the church does that, it's a picture of Christ on earth. This kind of community, too, is really important in our mission because our mission really is to connect the world to the church. That's what we do, right? You can imagine your, your ministry of evangelism is very simple. It's like a rope with three cords, and one of the cords is your hospitality to people outside of Christ, and one of the cords is to practice Philippians 2 and really build up a community here, and the other cord is your life, and your life binds those two together as you, as you invite people that you've already given hospitality to in the world, and you invite them into the church body, and then this is a place, you know, centered around the gospel and centered around Christ, and they're going to hear the gospel. Like, it's those three cords together. It's your life bridging the world between the, the church and the world. It's so simple. And guys, it's the main way I've seen people come to Christ. You know, it's the main way. So the church is a family, cares for one another. And what's really cool with Epaphroditus, though, is that he is a great example of that care for one another being lived out in action. Paul gives Epaphroditus as an example of self-sacrifice for the body. So you have this care for one another. This is the action. Take a look at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This might be kind of confusing. I'll just break down what we think happened. You kind of, kind of re, do a reconstruction. But what, it looks like what happened is Epaphroditus is one of them. He's one of the Philippians. There's no evidence that he was, had any special role in the church, that he was a pastor or a deacon or anything like that. We just, he was a guy in the church. The church in Philippi had heard that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and they wanted to send him some funds and support. We can see in chapter 4, he says, I've received the full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. The reason why this was important, so Paul's in Rome, he's in prison. The church in Philippi is here. They hear he's in prison. They send somebody. The reason why they send somebody with money is because the state in those days did not feed the prisoners, Okay. Like, people had to come and feed you. They provided a cell, 
and a chain connected to a Roman soldier, and friends and family supplied the rest. Because, like, why feed this guy? He's guilty, you know, right? That's the way it worked. So Epaphroditus is being sent to bring uh, money to take care of Paul's needs and probably to stay with him and take care of his needs. Like I said, this is Paul's first imprisonment. We can read about it at the end of Acts, but it was basically like a house arrest where he is chained to this soldier and he's just there. And so he's awaiting in prison to see if it, how his trial is going to go, whether he's going to live or die. And Epaphroditus was sent to meet Paul's needs at that time. From Philippi to Rome is an 800-mile walk and ferry ride. So it's a very long distance. So it's going to take a couple months for him to go. Apparently, it looks like he got sick along the way and arrived at Rome basically like half dead. Okay? And a messenger was sent back to Philippi saying, hey, Epaphroditus arrived. He didn't look so good. Right? God later heals Epaphroditus. But his friends back in Philippi, they don't know that he's recovered. They don't know if he's dead or alive until he comes back with the letter. Like, surprise, you know, right? And there's a cool, like, whole network of concern here because Paul's like, hey, you heard about me in prison and you were concerned about me, so you sent Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus got sick along the way and almost died. And then when he arrived, I was really concerned about him, you know? And he says, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Word got back to you guys, and then you were concerned about Epaphroditus, and then he got better, and then he was concerned about you guys being concerned about him, right? And then... It says, and, and I got concerned about all of you guys because you're concerned about each other, and so I sent him back. That's what you see in verse 28. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. He's like, then I can just stop worrying about all of you guys worrying about each other. So that's basically what happened there. And there's a real theme here, which is super cool, of like deep concern for each other, which I think could be convicting to us. If we think about this body of believers and we think about how many of these people do we experience that kind of deep concern for? In fact, the word that Paul uses for Timothy having genuine concern for them is the same word as in chapter 4 for be anxious for nothing. It's the same word. You know, that Timothy has true anxiety for you guys. You're like, wow, that's interesting. Like, how do you reconcile that? Like, be anxious for nothing, but Paul's you know, admitting right here that he's very anxious about them, and he commends Timothy for being anxious about people. Like, there's a deep level of concern that borders on anxiety that is completely appropriate for caring for one another. I don't know about you guys, but my anxiety's always been about myself, actually. Thinly disguised as anxiety for other people, Right? But there's a type of concern that we should have, a deep concern for each other. So maybe this is a check for you on like how deeply integrated you are into the body is. Do you on a regular basis feel deep concern about the needs of people that are here? Do you know what their needs are? In the life of Epaphroditus, we see that concern turn into sacrificial action, right? An 800-mile walk plus ferry ride to go help a brother in prison, right? Somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus gets sick. Verse 27 says, indeed, he was ill to near death. But what's really neat, so what it looks like is he goes. He's like, I got to help Paul. He's got money. Probably took some other people with him because he's carrying money. And he gets sick along the way. And then he just decides to keep going. You know? He's like, Paul needs me. I'm just going to keep going. And I just wonder... Think back to that. You see Epaphroditus. He's on his way to Rome. He's on this trail. He's walking. He's getting sicker and sicker as he goes. What would we have said to him if we encountered him? You know? Think about it. 
if you were coming the other way and you found out what he was doing, what would you have said to him? He'd be like, hey, bro, you don't look so good. And then what would you say? You should take it easy. Take care of yourself. Like, your health is the top priority. You know, don't ever serve the church in such a way that it costs you too much. Right? Calm down. It's not like you're a pastor or missionary or something. Right? Would that be your advice? Liars. Okay, that would be my advice. I'll just admit it and then, you know. But that would be mine, right? I'd be like, this is not right. Anything that makes you look like this is too much. Right? But it's not. Look at what Paul says. This is Paul's assessment. He says this. He says, Epaphroditus, you should have taken more care of your health. No, look at verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. He's like, well done, Epaphroditus. That risk was right. That push was right. And the only command in this whole text is to honor brothers and sisters that are like Epaphroditus, right? And the cool thing is you actually have a lot of options of people to honor in this church that do that very thing. So Epaphroditus is an example for us, too. Paul's not just saying commend him, but in one sense, be like him. Just like he's saying about Timothy. He's an example, guys, of an ordinary believer. You know, a lot of times they're like, oh, the guy was an apostle, not me. This guy was, this is an ordinary believer exercising his, his concern for another believer. As far as we know, you know, he's just a regular member. Look at what Paul says about him. You know, Timothy was a pastor and a missionary. But Paul gives five descriptions of him. He says in verse 25, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. Now, minister there doesn't mean like a professional minister. He was a minister to his need. Every believer is a minister in that sense. So that's what it looks like, guys, to be the church for each other. That when somebody in this room is, is in a place of darkness and chains like Paul was, that you would be the brother or sister to minister to their need. To have that concern for them, the kind of concern you only get from family, right? Uh, that you would be the fellow worker, that you would help them to live out their mission, that you would be their fellow soldier, that you would get in the foxhole with them, that you would be their messenger, that you would bring them the truth of the gospel that they need to hear, right? That you would minister to their needs. Our care for each other should be sacrificial love like Epaphroditus. And this is handy because it's really hard to get yourself killed for Christ here. Have you noticed? You guys are really quiet. <laughs> Have you found a way? You haven't found a way. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to get yourself killed for your faith around here. But what's cool is Epaphroditus managed to find a way to risk his life for Jesus' people anyway. So it wasn't persecution, it wasn't Romans, right? It was he pushed hard to love God's people. So I just asked you this morning, how can you risk your life and sacrifice for the people in this room, for these people who you are in a church family with? Like, what will it cost you to love them? And our, our cultural thing is like, as soon as it starts costing, I'm done, right? Oh, this is costing. Cut out toxic people, right? Like, this is costing me. But Epaphroditus is an example that the cost is good. It'd be really good if we'd sacrifice ourselves for each other. So how will we do it? Will it be our time and leisure? Will you give up some of your scrolling time? You have somewhere between two and five hours of it. Would you give up some of your scrolling time? Would you, would you give up a bit of your family time? Like, whoa, that's not biblical. It is, right? It is. Would you give your ministry a presence? Like so often when people are suffering, all they really need is for you to like sit with them. 
to just eat with them, to just pray with them, to just sit there quietly, you know, like Job's friends were in the beginning. Ministry of presence, right? Will you watch their kids? Will you include them in your family life? Uh, how about money, you know? We have deacons who have a deacon fund. So if you guys have any needs, please let the deacons know. We got Ish and Christina and Dave Hampson are our deacons. And we have a good-sized fund for anyone that needs it. We have funds for you guys. And usually, you know, tens of thousands of dollars come out of that every year. And that's something you guys have made happen. And we want to use it. But I also know that a lot of you guys, you'll give each other directly, too. You give, you give somebody a car. You gave somebody, you know, a place to stay. You gave them all kinds of different things. It's a beautiful thing. Will it cost you the energy of fervent prayer? You know, like how much energy have we expended fervently praying for each other and their, our needs? Will you risk your awkwardness? Would you risk your awkwardness? Would you? Guys, we struggle so often at reaching out and really getting involved in people's lives because we're afraid it could lead to feelings of awkwardness. You know? Like that's a side effect of ministry. All your ministries may cause feelings of awkwardness, right? And I just want to help you, and I've told you this before, but like awkwardness is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Like tons of people die of it, you know? That's how we act though, right? We act like, oh, if I was, you know, this could kill me, you know? Like it won't kill you. You might feel ill-equipped, right? You're probably going to feel ill-equipped, and, and that's okay. You say, well, hey, I'm not a pastor. Neither was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus didn't make his own safety and security and comfort his top concern, right? He risked it all for God's people his whole life. And he's the kind of friend that when you're, when you're in the dark and when you're in chains, he will be there if it means walking 800 miles and even if it kills him. Isn't that amazing? You want to be that kind of friend? So cool. And he reminds us of our greatest friend, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about how these guys connected the gospel. I was just thinking about, like, Paul and his son Timothy remind us of the shared concern that the father and the son have for us, right? That, that seeing our condemnation and sin and yet wanting to adopt us into their family, the father sends the son. And the son went because he was one soul with the father, you know, that he came. And he shared his father's love for us. Jesus came not to look out for his own interests, but for ours. Like Epaphroditus, Jesus traveled a long way to minister to our needs, right? He came all the way from heaven to earth to pay the price for your sins. Like Epaphroditus, Jesus endured the distress of his people. That word distress in verse 26, it says Epaphroditus had this distress for the Philippians. The only other time in the New Testament that word distress is used is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't that amazing? You know, that he, Jesus took on our distress as he saw the cross approaching, as he saw the penalty he would pay. Yeah, he was distressed. He took on our distress. And in spite of that pain, Jesus made that long walk to the cross. First the long walk to Jerusalem, then the walk to the garden, then the walk to run right into the hands of the soldiers, knowing that's what was going to happen, and then the walk to each trial, and then the beatings and the scourgings, and then he carries the cross that long walk to the place of crucifixion, you know, collapsing half dead along the way. Unlike Epaphroditus, Jesus didn't love us merely at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. On the cross, Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself, suffered to bear it all away. Jesus died on the cross 
so that we bear our sins no more, but what we bear now is his perfect righteousness, right? And we will forever be received into the family of the Trinity because of the righteousness we have in Christ. And Paul says, honor such men. And he will be honored. Philippians 2 says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. And what's super cool that he's doing in this time is he's filling you all and me. He's filling us with his spirit and he's sending us into the lives of other believers. And I I feel like he's saying this commendation that Paul said about Timothy. This is the commendation of God on you. For I have no one like them who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. You know their proven worth, how as sons and daughters with a father they have served me in the gospel. So cool. Because of our union with Christ through the Spirit, we're sent out one soul with Christ, right? We share his very affections for other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that amazing, amazing gift of your son Jesus. That you would have such love for us that you didn't, you didn't send us a letter. The letter would have done us no good. We already had the law. We already weren't keeping it. But you sent us your own son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you that I just can't imagine offering my kids to anyone, for anyone, and yet you offered your own son, Jesus, for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you share the love of your father for us. And that you came and offered yourself freely in our place for our sin. And Spirit, we thank you that that we care about these things. That we the fact that we love and embrace Jesus is all your work, and we thank you for that. And Father, we pray that we would be your son's hands and feet, his heart and mind in this world, his body. And Father, we're well aware of what the world did to Jesus' hands and feet. And yet we want to be that body here in the world, faithful to you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make us a blessing, first to the people in this very place, in this very family, and then to all that you would call from every tribe and nation and people and language. What an honor. What an honor to be found in your son, Jesus, and what an honor to be sent out as your people. We pray, Lord, whatever difficulties, whether it's just on the level of awkwardness or on the level of hostility. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the life and the heart of Jesus to love when we're not loved and to show forth your compassion in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.